out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki. When you have theological and philosophical discussions, do things get heated? Do you sometimes struggle to have good disagreements with people? In today's episode, I sit down with Ryan Shields to discuss theological disagreements. We get into the good, the bad, and the ugly of theological disagreements. We share stories about times where disagreements have gone really bad and what we can learn from them. We also discuss stories where disagreements go really well and how we can try to foster better conversations in the future, all for the sake of coming to better understand truth, beauty, and goodness. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here is Ryan and I talking about our disagreements. Enjoy. So listening to your podcast episodes with Richard Rice, I'm I'm just disheartened over how many evangelicals have disparaged or dismissed something like open theism. Like in, in some ways, it reflects what I've noticed in some classroom discussions at my mostly reformed seminary. When I try to defend views that my class my classmates kind of disparage or dismiss, it it just kind of it feels fruitless. Like they've already made up their minds. Um, you know, God's not sovereign enough on open theism. Man's got too much authority or power. It's just flat unbiblical, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but when you disagree with friends, um, what sorts of questions or goals do you have to disagree well? Um, I mean, I love my classmates, and I want us all to think better so that we can love God and and His people better. So to start, why don't you tell me uh, what you think theological disagreement is, what its purpose might be, and how you might disagree well with others? Yeah, so I thought this was a really good question because it did think like really forced me to reflect on that episode with Richard Rice because when I was reading that the stuff from, from the book, like that was really disheartening to me as well. And then sort of thinking like, I've got a really good group of friends in the analytic community. Like we disagree really well. So I'm like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess just kind of start, I'd say like, I take theological disagreement to just be just any kind of case where people have different views about some religious topic. Mm-hmm. And whenever I walk in a room with a bunch of philosophers and theologians, I know that for like, for a fact that I disagree with everyone in the room about something mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but like, you know, I'll probably find out at some point. And that, and that doesn't usually bother me too much because like I see theology and philosophy as like a, like a quest for truth. Mm. And, and so when I have like a theological disagreement with other people, I take it, well, usually take it as like an opportunity to think more about certain issues. Mm. And then hopefully I will arrive like one step closer to the truth. Mm So when I have dialogue partners who disagree with me, you know, I I usually see it as like something that's like really helpful to trying to get again, like one step closer to the truth. So when I see my dialogue partner as sharing in this truth seeking task, that helps me disagree well with them. And then if I see my dialogue partner as like an object of, so it was like somebody who's like worthy of my respect. And and I understand that we're like, we're both kind of like sharing in this task of seeking the truth. Mm -hmm. I think that also helps me disagree well with them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I suppose like there's probably more to it than that. So if I see my dialogue partners engage in some kind of hero worship of like their favorite dead guy, or like they don't really know how to follow an argument, or they're just kind of making stuff up, then I really struggle to disagree with them. Well, if they say things that I are really disrespectful and make me see that they're not really viewing me as an object worthy of respect, that makes it difficult for me to disagree with them well. And maybe it's because I just, I guess I don't really see them as participating in the shared task of truth seeking at that point. 
or maybe it's because I don't really see, like respect them as a serious thinker at that point. Uh, I just, it kind of depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to get into this issue a bit, like a bit more, like I've got some questions for you. So you've done some work on something called argumentation theory. And like in a previous conversation, you had mentioned to me, there's these two different kinds of attitudes that people have uh, when they, they might have when they're making a disagreement. So one attitude is called a success-driven attitude. So tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm getting these categories and attitudes from a couple of uh, argumentation scholars, uh, Franz von Emeren and Rob Grutendorst, uh, particularly from their book, A Systematic Theory of Argumentation. So if there are any other argumentation nerds out there who recognize this <laughs> text, I found a friend. Well, roughly, uh, roughly a success-driven attitude views disagreement as an opportunity to convince the other person right away of my viewpoint using whatever knowledge they'll buy into at the time. So on this attitude, the goal of disagreement and just argumentation in general, it's to win and avoid defeat uh, from others. So yeah, we might imagine a situation in which two scholars, like a philosopher or theologian, disagree about something like, I don't know, God's relationship to time. And if one of them has a success-driven attitude in the dialogue, her arguments, questions, her assertions, whatever she says, will be given in an attempt to get the other person to to her side swiftly. The disagreement will be a success if and only if she wins the assent of her audience. In the case, in this case, her dialogue partner. So there is a a I don't know about clear, but there is a winner uh, and a loser in the in the disagreement. Somebody wins and somebody loses. Um, disagreement with this attitude is not about some shared task or collaboration towards some common goal. It's uh, the point of it is immediate persuasion. Lots of popular level books about persuasion, your readers, and you probably have seen them like in Barnes and Noble or whatever. But a lot of these books about persuasion betray a success driven attitude with titles like uh, the tools of an argument, how the best lawyers think, argue and win, win your case, how to present, persuade and prevail every place, every time. And how to argue and win every time. Those sound pretty awesome, don't they? <laughs> right. And I can see like that, you know, the success really, it's yeah. right there in the title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How to win yeah. every time. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it. it's very triumphant. <laughs> yeah. So in our previous conversation, you told me about like another kind of attitude, which is called furthering mm-hmm. reflection attitude. So tell me about this argumentative attitude. Yeah, yeah. So this one's a bit different. Uh, this attitude views disagreement as an opportunity of a different kind. A furthering reflection attitude is going to emphasize different ways to resolve differences of opinion, um, to stimulate and engage in reflective, critical dialogue if he or she wants to convince the other uh, person. So one goal of disagreement on this attitude uh, is to understand and appreciate that other person's point of view before correcting it. Uh, Another goal is to facilitate reflection by asking critical questions or questions that get at some important feature of someone's argumentation um, and they require a response. So our theologian and philosopher from earlier may have their perspectives on God's relationship to time, but questions like, well, what does that mean? Uh, How do we know that? And how does that claim square with this idea? Uh, Questions like that will help them pause and reflect in the midst of disagreement. In this pause, they can uh, deliberate creative ways to resolve their disagreements. So rather than, you know, proof text from scripture, um, exalt one's heroes or quote unquote stump the other partner or one philosopher that I admire, John Mark Reynolds, uh, (laughs) called it um, engaging in slam dunkery. Um, (laughs) uh, Rather, 
Rather than any of that, um, the floor is open to consider and reconsider one's commitments about the nature of time, divine attributes, you know, God's relationship to the world, and so forth. So shared tasks and collaboration toward a common goal are possible when both parties share this attitude. Um, success if the dialogue partners explore alternative possibilities and invite response. And then I guess just uh, for clarification, um, one important difference between these two attitudes, success-driven and furthering reflection, is the pace. So earlier I used words like persuade and convince. Um, some argumentation scholars like Van Emeren and Grutendorst take persuasion to be immediate and efficient. While conviction is more slow going, it allows space for one to think through the options and come to a decision on their own time. Does, does that does that pace and those categories make sense? They do make sense because it, when I think about cases where I've had good dialogue with people, it, sometimes it'll be like three, four years later, they'll come back and be like, Ryan, that that, that point you made, I really, I'm, re- I'm really mm-hmm. persuaded now. And, and same, same thing for me too. Like there's been like a couple of years later, I'm like, yeah, that's a really serious problem. I can't believe I didn't yeah. see it earlier. So, so yeah, the pace is like really, really slow mm-hmm. in some of these it cases. Time, it's like a slow yeah. cooker almost. Uh, it takes time for these ideas mm-hmm. to to settle down to that level, I guess. Yes, yeah, it, it really does. I think so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then, so with these attitudes in mind, then uh, I'd like to ask you about your experience with theological disagreement. I'm curious if if either of these attitudes kind of map onto any of experiences you've had, um, have you ever encountered something like the success-driven attitude? Unfortunately, I've encountered it a lot. So uh, just quite a lot over the years. Here's one story from the very first year of my PhD. So it was, it was the very first time I was asked to present on divine simplicity. And it was like the early days of me developing my modal collapse argument. Mm. And so I'm sitting at this like really big round table in the seminar room. I'm at the head of the table. And then to my left is the moderator. And the moderator for my session was uh, a full professor. And so as I'm presenting my, like, my paper, um, this professor keeps like, openly scoffing, like really, really loud. Oh. And just like openly rolling his eyes like uh, <laughs> quite a bit. And I, I had seen him do this before, but not quite to this level. And like, oh my gosh, several of my friends in the room, they just they keep staring at me and then staring back at him. And they're going back and forth. And it's just really distracting for me and everybody else because he will not stop just scoffing very loudly and rolling his eyes and at some point maybe rolling his entire body, you know? Mm. And so I eventually just stopped. I just paused and I looked at him and I said, do you need a glass of water? <laughs> because I didn't know what else to do. Oh, gosh. And, and he just kind of goes, well, I, well, I, well, I, I, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, it's your paper. So you keep going. <laughs> and, and I was, I didn't, I, I was, I was not expecting that kind of response, but I was like, yeah, I, I know. But if you need a glass of water, there's a jug of water right there in front of you. Go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I pre- like carried on with the rest of my paper um, and he didn't scoff the rest of my presentation during the Q and a, he asked like some really mm. dismissive questions. Like, have you ever considered this idea? And I was like, yeah, it was on page six uh, of the paper <laughs> that's in front of you. You know, have you ever thought about like citing? So, and so yeah, it's on page 12, uh, you know, oh like, so like, it was just like really dismissive mm. just because he wanted everyone in the room to know that divine simplicity mm. has to be true because uh, he himself had like, presi- like has written several papers on the topic and just wanted everyone in the room to know that like you can't possibly even consider anything that like, you know, like this young man saying here. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, yeah, it was very much like success driven of like this has to just be shut down by any means possible. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's so unfortunate that. And it introduces like a, even like another dynamic too to some of this, where you've got you presenting the paper, you got the moderator, and you have an audience present. 
Um, mm-hmm. So there's like a multi-agent dynamic. It's not just one person to another, but it's like you've got one person to another who with a th- with a third participant kind of watching that exchange and being influenced by that exchange. And it's just amazing how even small gestures like a scoff or uh, eye rolling or crossing your arms uh, will just it, it it really aborts opportunity for reflection in that moment. It does. Yes. And it really changes what's the atmosphere in the room a lot yeah. in a very negative way. Yeah, it it really does. And except I can say this though, several people were, they still to this day remember be like, you remember that time you told professor so-and-so to like, you know, <laughs> if he needed a glass of water and I'm like, yeah, was, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. That was like, now it's kind of down in, in uh, the history of Mullins as a sort of uh, rejoinder. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so then coming back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, you also mentioned uh, hero worship um, in, in theology. So this is an interesting term. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? And maybe if you can give an example or two, that'd be helpful as well. Yeah. So so I see a lot of this with different thinkers uh, like Karl Barth and Thomas Aquinas. Uh-huh. And so the idea here is like if you try to criticize either of them, like their fanboys will just jump on you immediately and just tell you, you just need to read more Bart. You need to read more Aquinas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the idea is like somehow like no one could possibly disagree with Bart or Aquinas and have actually understood them. <laughs> and, and, and so I so I noticed this like it took me a couple of years during my PhD to identify what was going on. But there's this underlying assumption that like if you understand what they're saying, then it just necessarily follows that you agree with them. Mm, yeah. And I find this really weird. But I, again, like I encountered it all the time. And so here's one way, one of the main ways that I've encountered this. Mm-hmm. So, so like Augustine, Peter Lombard, and Thomas Aquinas, just like for an example, like they deny that God is really related to the universe. Mm-hmm. And then when you read a lot of people during the 20th century and then uh, the early 21st century, there are a lot of theologians who just like they pick up on that and they reject it. They're like highly mm-hmm. criticized. And they just found, because they found the denial of no, of like real relations, they just thought it was outrageous. They just thought it was out of step with the idea of like this omnipresent God of Christianity. Right. And, you know, and it, when I first encountered that, I thought like, well, it seems weird, but you know, okay, I don't know what's going on when mm-hmm. I was a student. But most of the time when I see this, like um, this sort of like objection raised, I'll see like a Thomist respond to the criticism. And what the Thomist does, they'll just reassert the doctrine of no real relations. Mm. So you get this weird kind of situation where they'll just like assert like, well, you just don't understand the doctrine of no real relations mm-hmm. is what they'll tell you. And then they state the doctrine in all, sometimes almost the exact same way that the objector did. Yeah, yeah. And then they pretend like somehow they like avoids the objection. And I, I just find that odd. So you get like a, so you get a dialectic like this. Mm-hmm. So like the critic will say Aquinas affirms X, Y, and Z. And well, X, Y, and Z entails a contradiction. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, okay. I can get an argument. And then the Thomas will reply, you don't understand anything. You know, like, you know, let me give you this lecture on Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then they're like, you know, Aquinas did in fact affirm X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z. And and then I'm just sitting there going, well, yeah, I know. Like, I already, I, I know he affirms X, Y, and right. Z. I told you that. And then I told you it entailed a contradiction. <laughs> Can you please rule yeah. the contradiction? <laughs> it's getting in the way. <laughs> like, it's getting in the way here. You know, come on. Like, uh, and and so what I see here is like, it's just like this very, like, they're just not even interested in removing mm. the contradiction. And it's very frustrating. It doesn't advance the conversation. Mm. Here's another kind of like uh, example that I see a lot of this. Like, I'll get this sort of um, like rhetorical reply where someone will say, do you really think that you are so much smarter than Augustine or Aquinas? Like, you just cannot right. say that they're wrong. Like, if your objection is really a problem, like, mm. they would have noticed it. They didn't notice it, so your objection mm. cannot be a problem. Mm. 
I have seen this for every single like medieval thinker. I've seen it for Bart. I've seen it for like tons of different people. Like, and, and so I, so there's something like odd here. So like the, the accusation is that like somehow like you're being arrogant if you think you could disagree with like the ever infallible Aquinas, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, okay, okay. Uh, And I think this is a weird assumption because it's, it's treating Aquinas like, like it's treating him that he's so incredibly Mm. omniscient that like he could have just anticipated like every possible objection. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like Aquinas is like, he's this God among men. Like he's, he's this like sort of like superhero. He's got these, like these special powers of like argumentation and just seeing the truth. And, and so that's where I want to say that's hero worship. Like they're making him out to be something that he himself would reject because Aquinas didn't think he was infallible. He didn't think he knew everything. Like Mm -hmm. he considered objections. And so the idea that like, well, if I come along, go, well, like, no, I treat him like he's infallible. And like, Mm -hmm. how dare you question him? You know, I'd be like, Aquinas himself would be like, yeah, question me. Ask, Ask a question. And I'll give you, I'll give you a response. I'll give you, you know, I'll be like, you gave four objections. Here's my response to yeah. each one. Like he'd do that's that. That's how we do things but... in the scholastic method. Like that's, he'd welcome that. Right. He would. I think he would. Uh, and so that's why I think this is odd when I see this response. But what's ultimately frustrating is what it's doing is it's just completely dismissing any objection you give. And it just doesn't even really consider mm-hmm. the objection. So it doesn't advance any conversation. You're just kind of yeah. insulting people. And yeah. It yeah. just ends it, there. It, in a way, uh, it, it, it sort of that that move that that that's that speech act almost in a way of just re reiterating or reasserting um something from aquinas bart or um even anselm as awesome as anselm is uh mm-hmm. i i enjoy anselm quite a bit but oh yeah just that gesture of just like let me tell it to you again almost <laughs> it, it it almost treats the it almost treats their witness as axiomatic is like just let me just stick mm-hmm. it out here again. Like we we agree that they said this, so we're gonna treat it like an axiom. We're just gonna plug in the calculus again. And we're gonna get the same result. And it's like, yeah, if we get the same result, uh, but you know, just because just because they said it doesn't mean we can treat it like an axiom of sorts. We've they p- probably would mm-hmm. not have uh, treated their work as such. Um, I can't imagine uh, Anselm's prayers uh, and meditations would he would find it very attractive to his work being cited in that way. Yeah. Especially because you, what you see with Anselm is you see him laying out like, here's, here's my prayer. Yeah. I hope this argument's good. Yeah. I hope you find it convincing. And I, and I like that. Cause I also see that in like Scotus. I see that in a lot of the like Cappadocians mm-hmm. where they'll just say, here's my argument. Um, consider it for yourself and tell me if you think it's convincing. Yeah. I think it is. I think it's great, yeah. but you know, let me know if you think it is that way. And so I'm like, okay, well then I'm going to, be a good philosopher and and do that and go. I'll consider yeah, your argument yeah. and tell you and so what I think about you, it. You almost get this very strange. Um, uh, you see almost evidences of a furthering reflection attitude in some of these medieval thinkers being used in a success driven mm-hmm. attitude. <laughs> um, yes, it's yes, so that's very accurate. It's really yeah. unfortunate, um, uh, but that that does help me get a clearer view of um, what you mean by hero worship. Um, and I mean. Uh, mm-hmm. Lord knows, uh, Luther and Calvin uh, were my heroes at one point. I'd like to say I've I, I learned better, but maybe not. <laughs> I'm I'm still fallen, uh, so we'll leave. I mean, because I, I want to say, like, have your heroes, have admiration for them, but yeah. see them for who they really are. Is is the main takeaway from this? Like, don't give them superpowers. Don't make them yeah. seem like they're infallible. Because I, I, especially with like a case like Calvin or Luther, where they're so quick to yeah, say, "Oh, yeah. worm that I am," you know, um, yeah, treating them like they're infallible. I think they would be like, "I told." Yeah. <laughs> not to engage in idolatry 
what are you doing right now? You're engaging in yeah. Luther's like, going to break out his shorter catechism, and he's going to say, mm-hmm. "I'm going to show you which commandment you're uh, in danger of right, <laughs> right. now." Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, well, then there there's something else that you mentioned earlier as well that I wanted to come back to. That um, mm-hmm. you said that if someone's just making stuff up, um, you struggle to respect them at that point. Uh, does this happen to you often? And if so, I guess, what are your tells where that's going on? Mm-hmm. So surprisingly, yes, like this does happen a lot. Like, I don't know how many times I have encountered people just making up church history, like when I've been presenting arguments or just putting incredibly weird words into my mouth. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so here's some different examples of this. So I once gave a talk on the Trinity and divine temporality. And so in this talk, I explicitly critiqued and rejected an Aristotelian understanding of God. Like that was like part of, that was like the yeah. first part of the talk. And then in the second part of the talk, I affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity and I explained how divine temporality can kind of help you like mm-hmm. unpack that. And so then someone in the audience accused me of worshiping the God of Aristotle <laughs> instead of the God of triune love. <sighs> and, and so like, and this guy was like, he was really condescending about mm-hmm. it too, the way he said it. Like, like he like even like kind of like, like there's like hand waving and then you actually like physically see someone like waving their hand at oh. you and I was like okay and so this was uh it wasn't the very first academic talk I'd ever, ever given it was the second one so I was not very used to yeah. just this in general and so I did not take it very well um that first time so like I immediately said like I was like I just spent 40 minutes explicitly critiquing like this Aristotelian <laughs> understanding of God and then I gave you an articulation of the Trinity like what are you talking about <laughs> Uh, like I, I was, so I was like, I was, I was pissed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that day I had a good moderator. And so the moderator, like he was just stepped in and he's just like, you know, these are good questions. Like perhaps, uh, you know, as we uh, take some other questions in the audience, like we'll get to, you know, to, deeper into these issues. And, and so I was just like, okay, cool. Like just take a breath and chill out <laughs> yeah, for a second. Just breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've gotten kind of better at like when I get a bad question like that, there are something like really condescending like that. I'm like, okay, like, you know, I can handle it mm. more now because I anticipate it now. So here being a case of this. Um, so I was giving a talk in Greece. And I was in a, I was in Delphi. Uh, so giving a talk there on the incarnation. And so I was like, I'm packing some ideas from the early church fathers and offered some like direct quotes from people like Origen mm-hmm. and Apollinaris and Cyril. And this one woman in the audience, she, during the Q and a, uh, she asked me a question and she, she actually just accused me of making up the quotes. Oh yeah. And, and I just, you know, just kind of politely disagreed and then read the quotes verbatim again. And then, you know, said, here's the source that I'm getting them from. Mm. And that did not make her happy in the slightest. Uh, and so she like started like whispering something, uh, the person next to her. And I didn't know what she was saying exactly at the time, but it, it turned, it was one of my friends, uh, she, she was sitting next to. And so apparently she was saying some really, mm. really nasty stuff about me. Uh, and I could tell just from like her, how quickly just immediately, like, you know, like she, just, <laughs> she was like, <laughs> uh, like instantly. And so I was like, whatever she's saying must be terrible. And I got confirmation it was but what what i did witness is like almost instantly was my friend sitting next to her just said you're being rude like, and he said it like not a not at a terribly loud volume but i could hear it oh my God. And, and then he turned his back on her uh and and so that was really funny to watch but like i'm like i'm like in front of the entire audience so i can't you can't break. i can't laugh i can't <laughs> giggle like i gotta be like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm really paying attention to search you know, what you're asking mm-hmm, over there mm-hmm. yes i'm not paying attention to this Yes, woman getting yes. a cold shoulder now at the moment, you know, so I had to, <laughs> had to keep a straight face. So I imagine it's hard to do. <laughs> it, it was because it was so, it was so well-deserved to hear that you're being rude, but uh, you know, yeah. So I guess like, like, uh, so I've had like other people like in other like academic settings at different um, cases. This one happened at a different university. 
I was giving a talk on, I can't remember what the talk was on actually now. Um, but I remember somebody, I was, it was, oh, that's right. I was on Divine Simplicity. Uh, I'd been asked to give a talk on this. And some guy asked me some question, I gave a response and he's like, well, you're just an atheist. <laughs> oh, what? And, and I didn't know what to say that. And I was like, uh, I kind of mm-hmm. thought it was affirming the existence of God. And, uh, and I asked him for further questions and he didn't know how to elaborate it. And then the moderator was like really wanting like to move on quickly. Cause he was mm-hmm, just like, this mm-hmm. is just outrageous. We got to get on with this. Another time I was at a different workshop. This one was in the States. And uh, this guy was working on um, the incarnation. So I was like really excited about his dissertation. That is, I was like, oh, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with this? Like, I was really curious to hear all about it. <laughs> and he asked me if I was even Christian. Uh, like, and and me and the guy standing next to me were like, okay. And he, he changed his attitude. He's like, he's like, I mean, um, what kind of Christian Ooh. brother are you? And I was like, ah, well, you know, here's my denominational background. You know, and so I just, I let it go because I... It was used to hearing a lot of mean spirited things. Um, and so I think he realized mm. he had stepped in it. And so he was just like, he just let it go. Uh, and we both just pretended that he never did that. So it was like, yeah, <laughs> well, except I'm here I'm talking about it now. Uh, but um, it, it's, it's, it's part yeah, of whatever. Now. <laughs> the unreality of the past. Exactly. You exactly. You're getting your philosophy <laughs> times. So there you go. Um, here's one final example. Mm. This is from the peer review process. So you'll probably always hear people like academics online complaining about reviewer number two. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it's true because like sometimes the referee reports, you, they, I mean, they're absolutely mm. wild in what, what they say. Uh, and so I had, I've had people make up quotes oh. that are nowhere in my paper. And I've had people tell me that I'm making up church history or that I'm making up things that classical theists say. And it doesn't matter that I'm like directly quoting people. Like I'll still wow. like get accused of, of making stuff up. And, and so like my wife, like she didn't understand this until we wrote a paper together. Uh, This was a paper that we're we're working on, on open theism and molecular biology and the review reports. I mean, they were outright slanderous. One of the reviewers accused us of like being these conservative American evangelicals who, this was my favorite quote. Uh, He said, quote, right as if Darwin never happened. (laughs) And, and so, and then he accused us of not understanding biology. Uh, and so, so like my favorite part of this referee report was when the reviewer accused us of engaging in, uh, like neoliberal economic politics. (laughs) And I don't know where, like, yeah, so it was bizarre. So like, so you've got like all this sort of stuff going on here because we never even mentioned economics. We we don't do like economy stuff. Like that's not us. So either like we're a bunch of like American fundamentalists who deny evolution. So our paper needs to be rejected on those grounds, but yet we're also somehow like these neoliberals. So our paper should be rejected. Yeah. And so this is just like, it was just outrageous. Um, Now to give people like context, like like my wife's Italian, so she's not an American fundamentalist because she's never once lived in America and doesn't understand what Mm -hmm. fundamentalism is. She doesn't even understand what evangelicals Mm -hmm. are because she grew up in a Catholic church. Gotcha. She didn't meet like a lot of Protestants. So she just doesn't understand these these Mm -hmm. ideas. Um, it It just made no sense to her. And then also she's like an actual molecular <laughs> biologist. So she was, she was pretty pissed off when someone accused her of like denying evolution, especially because like in her paper, like her portion, like portion of the paper is her like literally describing evolutionary mechanisms, <laughs> like in a lot of like nitty gritty detail. Oh, and so we're wow. just like, wow, what is this? Yeah. So whoever like was wow. reviewing this paper, like they just didn't want it published. And like, they were just literally lying about the content of our paper. And when that happens, it's, it's very difficult to have like a reasonable theological disagreement. Right. And it's also like very difficult for me to have any respect for these people. I mean, so this is, I I think these are cases where you have like some kind of gatekeeping where they're just like, Mm -hmm. we want to win whatever argument we're wanting. And 
what you're saying. It doesn't matter. We're just going to make out. We're going to lie about yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, they're just going to invoke these ironclad categories and lock you out of the discussion therein. And and uh, <laughs> in a way, it's like with their gatekeep. Once they've begun gatekeeping, it's hard to start gate crashing. <laughs> uh, it is. It uh, really is. Because the discussion ends right there, almost. It's it's a power move mm-hmm. to stop oh, yeah. the reflection and just win. Because once you start pushing back, their victory starts to wane, and uh, mm-hmm. they and this and as I'm describing this, I'm I, I hope I'm not inadvertently attributing malicious motives to to folks. These are just attitudes that are typically value neutral, but with very interesting potentially moral consequences uh, for how we practice mm-hmm. disagreeing well. Um, but and so, and I imagine with the paper, with peer review stuff, I imagine there's not always a chance to get to correct this stuff. But in those instances where, where you can start to, I guess, correct, course correct the discussion, I guess, um, mm-hmm. when that kind of stuff happens, is there anything productive that you can end up taking away from those sorts of things? Is there anything you've learned from when those disagreements go wrong? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I think there's a lot of stuff I've learned. So like first, like I think I've learned how to be very gracious and constructive in my own feedback, like when mm. I'm reviewing someone's paper, because I don't want to be engaged in some kind of ridiculous yeah. gatekeeping like that, uh, nor do I want to like lie about the content of someone's paper. So I've it's really changed the way that I engage in peer review when I'm doing it. And then also, if anybody's like read my stuff, they see that I oversight <laughs> in my publications. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot. And and I get asked about this because I, I remember the first time my wife would, read one of my papers, like when we were first dating and she was like you've got like, you've got like 120 citations here. Like, what is that? And I'm like, well, here's why. Let me tell you this one time in Greece. And exactly. Yeah. And so it's definitely overkill. Like it really is. But, but it's because people kept saying like, no classical Mm -hmm. theist would ever say that no classical theist has ever said that you're just making stuff up. Mm -hmm. And and so what I have to do in many of my publications is I have to cite as many classical theists making a particular claim as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm like, Oh, you know, no, no classical theist ever said that, you know, God does not have empathy. Well, here are five classical theists just saying that, you know? And so I'm like, Mm -hmm. boom, 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 quote, quote, quote. And that sometimes when I'm in a, like a seminar setting that still doesn't convince them, even though I have a direct quote, they're like, well, they probably meant something else. I'm like, sure, sure, yeah, sure, 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 of course. Um, but it's changed my writing style, I think. And it's really helped me dig deeper into the classical tradition. Mm. And so I think it's helped me develop new arguments. And I think it's really helped me a lot gain a better understanding of the entire classical tradition because it's really forced me to go, is, did they really say that? Okay, let me look through and like, okay, well, they are saying this. Ooh, here's a bunch more people saying this. So it's giving me this more robust picture of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. It would be really nice if I didn't have to write papers mm-hmm. with over a hundred citations. Like it'd be really cool if I could do what everybody else does, which is just have like yeah, a dozen yeah. citations. Maybe someday in the future, people will just, you know, just accept <laughs> what I have to say. Yeah, when I'm yeah. People, you won't have to but, work so hard to win their. Oh my God. It would make me so, yeah, I could have like twice as many publications out yeah. by now if I didn't have to do that, but you know, <laughs> then, uh, you know, whatever. So it's good to go slow, I yeah. guess, with the publications. So that's one thing, though, I guess, that they've got from this. Here's another thing I've learned. I think it's helped me present my ideas better, and it's helped me anticipate a lot of dumb responses. Hmm. Uh, and I think I'm better prepared to cut off really silly disagreements like um, than I was before, which I think will hopefully lead to more hmm. fruitful dialogue in the future. So I can anticipate, here's the things people get hung up on. If I can address hmm. it up front, then when the Q&A comes around, we can actually reflect on the real stuff, the really like real like substantive like disagreements. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really good. And then I guess here's the perhaps like the most important thing. It's led me to listen more carefully to people's mm. disagreements and criticisms. 
So like, are the objections that people are throwing around, are they actually worthwhile objections? Uh, are they simply engaging in empty slogans like divine simplicity or atheism? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are you actually treating people that we disagree with? Are we doing that in, a, in like a respectful manner? And so those are the kind of questions I start asking now. And it's really helped me view all sorts of people in a very different light. So I've come to see that some people who pretend to be championing like the faith, they, yeah. they really think like they are the champions of the faith. Some of them are like, yeah, you're just, you're just jerks. <laughs> like there's, there's no two words like way about right. it. Like you just are. And then others who have been like accused of being like heretics, I get to know them and get to see their work. And I'm like, well, these are actually really humble and faithful people. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's also helped me give like a much deeper appreciation for people like William Lane Craig, who like they go into these debate contexts and they have all sorts of like wild mm-hmm. accusations thrown at them all the time and some like yeah. really ridiculous questions yeah. and somehow are able to keep their cool. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not there yet. I'm getting close, but I'm not there yet. So hopefully one day I can, you know, continue to keep my cool. Mm-hmm. You'll be refined in the fire of criticism. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, that that's always that's been so fascinating to to see in in those uh i I mean you mentioned here uh the the multiple citations for some reason the i guess maybe two examples from my own personal studies on divine attributes um and the nature of god when i've read some of leftow's work Mm -hmm. i I remember one of the most (laughs) just i i guess i I don't know it's not off-putting but it's almost intimidating when i skip to his end notes and it's almost a book in itself. Uh, mm-hmm. And more than that, it's it's traditional Aristotelian syllogism spelled out, uh, like which type it can it <laughs> the argument conforms to, why this is the the type to prefer. And his 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 footnote and endnote game is is on point. But it, it yes, it, it's but it also means that he's got it at least looks like he's got a lot more sources. <laughs> um, Yes. And uh, he, he, I can only imagine how many he's got uh, in his library behind him. And then the speaking of like the, the depth of the, the criticism as well, uh, uh, Edward Weiringa, I hope I'm getting his name right. Mm-hmm. Um, his book on the divine attributes, fascinating stuff. Uh, yeah. And I remember when I got to the section on God and time, I think it was, uh, he quotes Nelson Pike, qu- who quotes Augustine. And then Weiringa quotes Augustine. But then... Weiringa goes even further and starts talking about translations of Augustine. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. I remember this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was like, okay, I'm not there yet, but yeah. uh, this, it's just a, those questions of, Oh, maybe he meant something else by this. Uh, maybe like there's a linguistic concern there to, you know, you want to do Augustine justice. Um, right. um, but also it's the, at this point, what's kind of happening in the argumentation chain is you've got your main claim that you're working with. And then you got subclaims that are kind of going behind that where the question is no longer does the ultimately the question is whether these claims support the premise, the, the conclusion, excuse me. But now you've got additional questions kind of buttressing the subclaims that you're moving mm-hmm. the discussions like, okay, you've made this subclaim based on Augustine. Well, let's talk about Augustine for a second. Uh, and it's almost, it's almost a really fascinating demonstration of just argumentation chaining uh, where you've got, mm-hmm. Uh, this appeal to the authority is this legit on what grounds is it legit um and so uh those are just a couple of examples that seem to um, comport with uh going beyond the sloganizing and going beyond uh just mere like oh yeah you're an atheist because you deny deny (laughs) divine simplicity um and yeah 
I'm still still admired about William Lane Craig that he he can just keep his cool. Like I don't think I've ever seen him mm-hmm. get like riled up in these contexts. I've seen him get spicy. I can't. Yeah, I can't because I can't think of a case where I've seen him get really riled up. I can think of some cases where it seemed like he should have, but like he just just responds, and I'm just like, how are you able to do that? That's crazy. Yeah, and it's almost it's almost like he's got like all of his he's he's got his like his sources just chilling out right next to him and he'll just calmly pull those out and i remember in a debate he did with rebecca goldstein and jordan peterson on the meaning of life mm. um, he pulled the steven pinker card uh and uh <laughs> just like just stared at goldstein as he right after he read it he was like yeah that's a quote from steven pinker and i remember just the atmosphere changed uh it's like ooh, <laughs> that's that's as my Greek professor would say, that is spicy. Uh, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. yes. But uh, so those are some examples of, you know, where discussion goes wrong and, you know, what you've kind of gained from all that. Um, what about cases where theological disagreement's gone well? Like they model that, model that furthering reflection attitude. So there's, um, so I'm, I'm at currently at the University of Helsinki and the Helsinki Analytic Theology Workshops, those have been great from mm-hmm. the start. Um, so everybody has to read the papers ahead of time. And then like when you're up to present, you just kind of give like a short, like 10 minute presentation on to remind everybody, this Mm. is what my paper is about. And then everybody's just there to like grill you for like the next hour. Okay. Like, cause they've all read ahead of time, like your paper. And so you're just on the hot seat for, for quite a while. (laughs) And the quality of the questions and the discussions I've always found to just be absolutely Mm. excellent. So here would be a case in point. So my handbook chapter on classical theism uh, for the TNT mm-hmm. Clark uh, uh, handbook of analytic yeah. theology. So I presented that at a different university. And the first question I got was, why did you write this? <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe we could find somebody else to write it. And so we had actually had a five minute conversation on maybe the editors could get someone else to write this. Wow. And I'm like, okay. Whereas I present that at Helsinki, everyone's like, this is excellent. Um, you've got these different objections here. Let's see if we can find a way out of these objections to mm. classical theism. And that's what we're doing for like an hour and a half. Wow. It's just like, boom, boom, boom. Can we figure out a way to get out of wow. these objections? It was excellent. Everything in the Society for Philosophy of Time, they do an annual God and Time workshop. Those have been always such high mm. quality stuff. The last one was in uh, Switzerland. And I remember these, um, there's uh, quite a few Italians there. And so uh, Aldo... Um, Aldo Fugiro was there, and I remember him just getting like, really passionate at some point like during my Q&A. Everybody's asking these amazing questions. He's trying to explain something, and I'm like, I'm just not fully understanding. He's like, do you mind if I get up and write some stuff on the whiteboard? And I'm like, yeah, go for it. And he just like starts writing out like all, like, all these logical syllogisms to try to explain, like, here's the semantics you need for this in order mm-hmm. to solve this problem. And I was like, I'm just sitting there taking notes to try to like yeah. grasp everything he's saying. And that's the attitude in the room, though, is the attitude is we're here trying to figure things out. And we're like going to be lobbying objections at you, but it's all to try to figure out how to make your argument stronger, how to consider like what you're saying in more deep ways. And then eventually like you will get a better paper in the, at the end result. Yeah. I think it's excellent. The other kind of example I can think of is, um, so my mentor, when I was teaching at Cambridge, my mentor, Douglas Headley, he was really great to me that year. He had me speak at this uh, place called the London, uh, the London Athenaeum. And at some point I'll have to tell you like the bizarre like place this is. It's this like it's this weird um like elite gentleman's club. Uh, club thirty three from something. Disneyland or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know I don't know how to describe this. It was bizarre. Yeah, so I'll have yeah, to tell yeah. that story another time. Um but like I get whisked away to the West Library of the London Athenaeum. Uh, and and in the room are like uh, Bill Wood is there, and that's when I got to uh-huh. first meet TJ Mawson. Uh and so there's like all these like really like cool, like like great people there. 
and I'm presenting and they're all disagreeing with me, like, you know, left and right, but it's just like a good conversation. It's friendly. They're asking really like pointed objections, but it made my work so much better in the end because we're all there to try to figure out how do we advance these discussions in philosophy yeah, and religion? Yeah. That was the goal. So, so those would be some like cases where everyone in the room, they are trying to figure out and slowly, methodically, how do we really get at what's going on here? How do yeah, we get at what's, yeah. what's true? It's this, it's this patient pouring over these questions, figuring out what stuff is going to refine, what's going to be helpful to create a, an excellent final product. It sounds like truth and excellence govern the, the work ethic in those contexts. That's yes, awesome. it really is. Yeah. yeah. That. Praise God. Um, and then, uh, so, I mean, you mentioned a couple of societies and places you've been working with. What about just some particular examples of those wise, charitable, excellent, um, productive disagreements uh, in your life, like in philosophy, theology, or elsewhere? So, yeah, so I've already mentioned TJ Mawson, and he's been on the show. And he, that's right, he addressed uh, the question that you had sent in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I had to explain to him uh, uh, the reference to the, um, to the mosh pit because TJ, <laughs> like, like Tim doesn't, like, he doesn't listen to metal, but oh, he thought it was hilarious. He loved that. Um, but it's like Tim's, like, he's a great example of someone mm-hmm. who disagrees really well. Like, he wants to know yeah. the arguments, he's got a good sense of humor about it. So he's great. Um, mm. Tom Ord, who I've also had on the show, like, he's someone who is very humble. Uh, is really trying to think hard about a lot of issues and will take criticism mm-hmm. very well and he will give criticism very well. Yeah. My friend J.T. Turner, so he was doing his PhD at Edinburgh uh, it was, and I, he started his PhD the last year uh, of my PhD and, mm-hmm. and it turned out we, had, we were just living down the street from each other. Nice. And so we, like, we got on like instantly as soon as like, we met, like hung out. And so he's someone like mm-hmm. I could always just have a good disagreement with and come away you know, uh, having better understanding of some issues or a lot deeper questions to ask. Yeah. Sam Liebens is somebody I, I worked with uh, when I was at Notre Dame and we've stayed in contact o- over the years and w- w- have like, he just, you know, it's just like, he's just got this great sense of humor mm-hmm. and this great way of disagreeing with people uh, where, where I know he's not taking it personally and he knows that he can lay like lay out a big, like heavy, heavy, devastating like objection uh, to me. And I, I won't take it personally where I will go. <laughs> okay. I'll think about that for a while. I was, you know, yeah, yeah. Like it's great. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and then, uh, Catherine Rogers is someone who I've always really admired her work. And when I've given her some, some of my papers in the past, she gave me really good feedback. I remember the very first thing I sent her, uh, it was the very beginning of my PhD she sent me this comment of like, here's your, here's all my feedback for you. I was mean as I possibly could have been because it's for your own good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And then she's just got these really, like really thought provoking kind of criticisms to go along. Like, you know, like as she's like going through the paper and, and it really changed wow. the shape of my, my dissertation a lot. It was really helpful. Uh, and then I, when I had a dialogue with her more recently on the majesty of reason, like, again, I could just see her personality coming out her ability to take criticism very yeah. well, her ability to have like a sense of humor about everything and to really go, we are in this like shared task yeah. of how do we figure out what's yeah, true. It, it takes a, I like it takes that. the pressure like off of each other to, uh, to, you know, come up with something right away or be snappy and witty at each other. But like, it was like, yeah, let, it's almost like a, a round table sort of context where you get to just um, enjoy each other's feedback and input and see what you can create together rather than who's going to emerge victorious in a sense. Exactly. Yeah, I guess yeah, um, yeah. if I could contribute to those examples as well, I mean, Tom Morris has been yeah. uh, just an excellent model for me as a, as a young seminary student, I've going from systematic theology textbooks uh, where cases are laid out, 
but I, I just feel like I'm not getting the full substance of the arguments that are being handled here. Like, I just feel like I'm missing something. It shouldn't be mm-hmm. this easy almost. Um, and, uh, and then I go to Tom Morris, especially his book, our idea of God. Right. Uh, it is so, it was so helpful. Oh, it yeah, came at just the right, the right time in my life. Um, when I just moved to Arizona and really, uh, was going through some theological shifts of my own. And I, I remember <laughs> he, as he was explaining arguments for like, here's a view of timeless eternity. Here are some reasons for a uh, temporal uh, sense of eternity. And I remember I would actually feel the force of them <laughs> and I could actually, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, if I want to disagree with someone, well, these are the sorts of arguments I need to churn out um, because it's going to demand the best of both of us um, in this task. And God deserves our best. <laughs> um, yes. If I can put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. And Tom Morris is, he's been a really, really great influence for me in that uh, to see what's the best I can do uh, to help us both here to love God better as we get better ideas of him and love each other better. Just calling us to calling each other higher, I guess uh, to truth and excellence. And then Josh Rasmussen uh, I've seen his interactions in, on capturing Christianity, which I kn- know that you and now Dr. Stephen Nemesh. Yeah. Way to go. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, y- y'all have been on that show. Um, but when I've seen uh, Dr. Rasmussen on it, he, his posture has always been so open and so the best, the best word I can describe his style is hospitable. He's he he is so welcoming of um, whatever the other yes whatever his interlocutor might throw at him. He'll sit there for a second and then he'll he'll come back with just a simple question. And it, those simple questions really have big impact in the conversation. And they're not presumptuous. They are very. He is so good at keeping conversations productive whether they're about something like necessary existence mm-hmm. or just the quest for truth in general. Uh, he's, he's mastered that. And then um, am I allowed to mention this bit about Jesus too? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I guess we could talk about our Lord and savior if you want. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I'm as a Christian, I feel a little bit uneasy to invoking <laughs> Jesus. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess. So maybe this is cheating, but I wonder if Jesus can be mentioned uh, as well as a, an example of wise, charitable, productive disagreement. I, I, I suspect when I'm looking through the Gospels that Jesus got into the occasional theological disagreement and at times modeled a ref- further reflection attitude. I'm I'm thinking of Matthew 21 as Jesus was teaching in the temple. Some, some chief priests and elders interrupted him and asked, well, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus responds to the question and a stipulation. Uh, I'll ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Well, then the elders and chief priests, you know, huddle together, and just, you imagine like the <laughs> uh, uh, huddle together and discuss. Well, so, well, well, if we say from heaven, and then he's he's just going to ask why we didn't believe John. But if we say from man, well, then the crowd's going to turn on us, and we don't want that. That's that's not going to be good for anybody here, and especially not for us. So their answer: uh, We don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, so Jesus, true to his word, didn't tell him by what authority he did those things. And when I see an episode like this, I, I ask, well, what happened here? Uh, Jesus was asked a question and then asked a question in response. Then discussion ensued. <laughs> I've heard in chapels sometimes growing up that um, we knew Jesus asked good questions because his questions stumped his audience. That for some reason they took that sort of huddling meeting as like slam dunkery. That because they couldn't come up with anything in response that Jesus won. Mm-hmm. And that was a good question. Um, and so by, ask, by application, just ask questions that back people into corners. But when I look at this passage, though, and some others, I don't see intent to stump in Jesus' own question. I see a 
good question that inspired a dialogue about a significant theological issue, namely the source of Jesus's authority. I, I guess I just wonder, could Jesus have been inviting the elders and priests to further reflect on their concern about Jesus's authority to teach? Um, and there are other examples of this, like these interactive parables that Jesus will sometimes, sometimes give. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you've got any additional thoughts on that. I don't know, because it does seem like in some cases he's shutting down conversations, but in other cases like this one, it, mm-hmm. it does seem like he's like, he's like, yeah, like, go on, think about it for a bit. And it's like, is the question we still are asking to yeah, this day of like, yeah. well, whose authority did he have? Was it from man or was it from heaven? Like, and so like, well, that, well mm-hmm. that's a good, it's a good question that with a good attitude of furthering this conversation. So I, yeah, I, I think, I think you're onto something here. It does seem like a bunch of cases you've seen in the gospels, they do look like they're mm-hmm. trying to further conversations, ask people to reflect further on these issues. Uh, well, Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show today, though. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm grateful to dialogue with you, Dr. Mullins. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Stay tuned for a series on God, time, and the Kalam Cosmological Argument. 